We are right in the middle of a sermon series called Into the Mess. We're looking at people in the New Testament whose lives were really messy. They were sick, they were grieving, they were addicted, they were violent, they were self-destructive. In every case, Jesus went into that mess and he gave them new life. Today we're looking at a very interesting case study of somebody with a messy life. We're going to look at Jesus's father, Joseph. There's a, an image on the cover of the bulletin that shows Joseph and Jesus. I ask you to look at that. This is from the uh, Georges de la Tour, who was a 17th century French painter. And in this painting, you see Joseph working in his wood shop. Obviously, he was a carpenter. He was a working class man. Matthew says that Joseph was a righteous man. And in this painting, certainly, he looks very earnest and hardworking. But if you look closely at his face, I think you can also see that he looks a bit confused. He's looking up at Jesus, and it appears that he's somewhat puzzled by this child. Why might that be? You have to remember that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son, given the miraculous circumstances of his birth. It would make sense that this child is a bit of a puzzle to Joseph. Who really is this child who was born of the Holy Spirit? When I look at this image, I wonder if Joseph in this moment is remembering something, a moment from his past. Because you see, there was a time in his past in which Joseph had decided that he was not going to be Jesus' father. His mind was made up. He was not going to raise this child. But then he had a dream. And it was this dream that convinced him to adopt this child, even though he was not his blood relative. And I wonder if Joseph in this moment is thinking back to that strange dream. It's that dream that we're going to look at today. This comes from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord uh, through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about why Joseph's life was so messy because of this pregnancy. Marriage in that time was very different than marriage today. All marriages in that time were arranged. 
And so when two people got engaged, it was the result of negotiations, not between individuals, but between families. There were many people involved, and these were binding contracts. Money was exchanged. Promises were made. These were serious agreements that could only be severed by a formal divorce, which nobody wanted to do. Now let's think about Joseph. He's a young man at the beginning of his adult life, at the beginning of a career, and he has a plan. Everything is laid out right in front of him. He can see his future. His family has secured for him a nice Jewish bride. He's going to have a career in the trades. This must have been both personally satisfying and also something of a relief because, let's be honest, life was hard in the ancient world. People did not live that long. Family in those days offered you a chance at survival. Community, having people around you to support you, offered you a chance at survival. And so anything that jeopardized your standing in the community was scary. And of course, Joseph was also doing what he thought God wanted. Matthew says that he was a righteous man, meaning his religion was important to him. He knew that the Bible is full of commands about the importance of marriage. It also contains, contains condemnation for sex outside of marriage. The rules were very clear. When two people became married, the wife was meant to be a virgin. Then comes the knock on the door. It's Mary. Imagine the terrified look on her face. Joseph, I need to talk to you. I'm pregnant, she says. What do you think the first question Joseph asked might have been? I mean, do we even need to wonder, Mary, who is the father? I mean, what do you think Joseph thought when Mary said, Joseph, actually, I had this vision, and in it, an angel told me that I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Does anybody here think that he believed her? We know he didn't. I mean, it says so right here. Joseph was going to divorce her. That can only mean one thing. He thought this story that she was telling him about being pregnant by the Holy Spirit was a lie. Now, that means something else. It means that he thought that Mary, this nice Jewish bride, was a tramp. I mean, I wish there were a nicer way to say it. But you see, it, it wasn't so easy to just get rid of a bride. Remember, deals had been made, money had been exchanged. Matthew kind of glosses over this part of the story. I think we have to imagine that it was a nightmare because Joseph was trapped. He had two very bad options. He could either th throw Mary out, in which case her life would be ruined, or he could marry her, in which case his life would be. Why would his life be ruined? Many reasons. Number one, Joseph didn't want this child because he didn't think it was his. Number two, how could he marry a woman who humiliated him in this way, sleeping around when they were engaged? Number three, even if he could possibly get over those issues, he had another problem. His problem is that most people in those, day, in those days could count to nine. And when they got married and Mary gave birth a few months later, everybody would assume that they had been together before marriage, also contrary to Jewish law. And so Joseph was trapped. And that is why when the angel appears in his dream, the first thing that angel says is don't be afraid. Because Joseph was terrified. Now here's what I think we need to know. This culture is what anthropologists call an honor-shame culture. 
And that means that your reputation means everything. Your reputation was defined by your family. Your individualism was not important. The main thing was your family's standing in the community. Can you now see the bind that Joseph was in? I mean, it wasn't only about him. This scandal could bring down two entire families. Now, some people don't know this, but we actually had something similar happen right here at Old Pine in the early 1770s. Everybody here knows that George Duffield was our first pastor, right? He actually wasn't. We don't talk about this a lot. Our first pastor was a man named Samuel Eakin. He was only here for a couple of years. When Reverend Eakin was called to the pulpit here, he happily moved in with his wife and their little baby, and everything seemed to be going very well, this new church with this new young minister. But then somebody started to do some math. And they discovered that this child of theirs was born a few months after their wedding day. Reverend Eakin left this church in shame. And it was such a scandal that it's actually kind of hard today to even find out accurate information about this. We have this book that is an official history of our church. It was published in 1905, but this is all it says. We cannot enter into the painful experience of the church with Reverend Eakin. He was suspended from the ministry for serious cause. In other words, they didn't even want to say what he had done because it was so shameful to say the words premarital sex. They didn't want that on the record books. Now, you might think to yourself, well, thank goodness we have progressed beyond those puritanical restrictions. A minister now would never be punished for premarital sex. Uh, Two things. Number one, they might be. And number two, the main point here is not the act that gets you ostracized. The main point is being cut off from community in the first place. Because it is still true that being cut off from community is the single most painful thing that any human being can experience. It is 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, and yet we are still social creatures. We still need our families. We still need our communities. When we are pushed out of them, it is the single most devastating thing that can happen. And that is why social media has become such a problem. Young people go on social media And they start to feel isolated, they start to feel left out, and it's devastating. Can you see why Mary and Joseph were in an impossible situation? Now, in our own cultural time, I think that we are in rather an ironic situation. I want to ask you a question. What might cause a person to to be rejected from community now? And I mean a place like Philadelphia, a liberal urban community like Philadelphia. The truth is that none of the things that were controversial, even in my own childhood, are that controversial anymore. Premarital sex, not a big deal. Coming out as gay, not a big deal. Having tattoos and piercings, totally fine. All of the things that when I was a kid were scandalous in my small town are really not barriers to community anymore. Definitely not in a place like Philadelphia. And I want to say that this is a great thing. We have become much more accepting of people's individuality, and that is a great thing. But we have a new problem now. What do you think would be the most controversial thing for a young person to be in an urban liberal place now? A Christian. A follower of Jesus. Now, I know this is true because I lived it. I spent my 20s in New York City. I moved there to 
try to make it in the world of documentary filmmaking. I was a hardcore atheist. I was convinced that science was the only path to knowledge. All of my friends felt the same way. And I, if somebody had entered our community and said anything about Jesus, I mean, that would have been the one unthinkable thing. You can be anything you want. You can ride down the street on a unicycle wearing a Speedo. That would have been awesome. We would have been right behind you to cheer you on. But don't be a Christian. Why? Because Christians are intolerant and arrogant and judgmental and naive and stupid. And they don't believe in science. But then something happened to me. I started to have dreams about God. It's really weird. I, at first, I ignored them. They would come back. Sometimes they were dreams at night. Sometimes they were daydreams. My mind kept going back to these questions that I thought I had settled a long time ago. Is there more to reality than meets the eye? Is it possible that life is not a random accident, but something that actually has meaning? What if I, as a human being, am more than $5 worth of chemicals? Long story short, I began to trust slowly something that I had rejected as irrational and stupid and old-fashioned and the kind of thing that only an idiot would ever take seriously. And that, of course, was a pretty big shift for me, and it did have consequences. People I was close, close with did not understand it. Some of those relationships faded away, and they never came back. Other people learned to tolerate me, even though they still didn't understand. But some pretty amazing things happened to me in my life because I came to believe that those dreams, those hunches, those intuitions were real. Because I found that the more I trusted them, the more connected I felt, the happier I felt, the more meaningful my life was. And I think that Joseph was in a similar place. He has decided he's going to divorce Mary. Of course he did, because it was the only rational thing to do. You don't marry someone who's carrying another man's child. Don't be naive. I mean, I know Mary told you that she had a religious vision. Please, you don't believe that. But that night he has a dream. And in this dream, an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph wakes up and he makes the decision to listen to this dream. And I think that's the most amazing thing of this entire story. He took this dream seriously. What do you think you would have done? I mean, I can't say that I would have listened to this dream. Definitely not the first one. It took me at least two years to start to actually take my dreams seriously. But in the Bible, dreams are taken very seriously. Joseph, the character of our story today, was named for another Joseph in the Bible. That Joseph was one of the greatest dreamers in history. He had a series of his own powerful dreams, and then he became a great dream interpreter long before Sigmund Freud. This Joseph was interpreting powerful people's dreams. He rose to the height of power in Egypt because he was the only one who could understand and explain the meaning of the Pharaoh's dreams. And so the Bible has always told us dreams are important. Dreams are one of the ways that God communicates with people. Dreams reveal things that are true. Now you might be saying, that was a long time ago. We just don't believe stuff like that anymore because now we live in an advanced society. Surely now, in the 21st century, science can explain in materialistic terms what dreams actually are. Right? 
Actually, no. There is no scientific agreement on what dreams are. Nobody knows what dreams are. There are theories, but there is no evidential kind of agreement on what happens when we have these stories that run through our minds at night. We know that dreams are part of human consciousness, but you see, that's another thing that nobody can explain. I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about science. Bear with me. I think it's interesting. It's interesting to me because when I was a child, I didn't know this. I thought that science had kind of figured all this stuff out. I mean, I knew that maybe way out in deep outer space, there were still some mysteries to discover, but I just sort of assumed that when it came to the human body and the human mind, science had basically already figured everything out. I can't tell you how wrong I was. I now know that the most basic aspects of human life are to this day pure mysteries. And let's just take consciousness because there is nothing more fundamental to life than consciousness. We have minds that are self-aware. This is the basis of everything we do. Every thought we have, every relationship, the sermon I'm giving you right now, the way you're listening to this sermon, all of these things are a product of our self-awareness. And yet nobody knows what that is. Nobody knows where consciousness comes from. And the truth is that it really shouldn't exist. Because if all there is in this universe is matter, there's no reason why matter should become self-aware. Follow me here. This is what I, I know this is a little bit abstract, but this is so interesting. If you look at human atoms, the atoms that make up our bodies, they're basically the same as the atoms that make up a rock. On that level of reality, there's really no difference between our particles and the particles that, that a rock has. And so if matter is all there is, if all we are is $5 worth of chemicals, how do those particles learn to dream? How do these atoms become self-aware? At what point does our material brain have the ability to be wise and moral and to play music and to enjoy food and to tell stories and to dream of new things? Well, it turns out that nobody knows. In science, this is called the hard problem of consciousness. If you think that matter comes first, then you have to think that our minds, whatever they are, have to come from matter. That at some point in the evolutionary process, these dead atoms learned how to dream, and yet nobody can explain how that happened. And they've been trying and trying, and for the last few decades, many philosophers have thrown in the towel, and they've begrudgingly come to the conclusion that materialism simply can't be true. It just doesn't make sense that our minds can come from dead particles. And so a very interesting thing has happened. I encourage you to follow this research. It's really exciting right now. In the last few decades, the philosophers who are working on the cutting edge of consciousness now say that something really radical must be true. Mind must come first. Consciousness must be the thing that is fundamental to the universe and matter must come from that. Are you following this? Intelligence must come first. Awareness must come first. This is quite scandalous now, but it's really gaining hold in the world of philosophy. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it might be because this is what Christians have always believed, that behind all of physical reality, there's intelligence. God comes first. God's consciousness comes before everything because God created everything. And of course, our minds, our consciousness was made in God's image. And so the most fundamental thing about human life is not matter, it's spirit. We are not $5 worth of chemicals. 
we are embodied souls, which Christianity has said from the very beginning. But there's something else. Because if consciousness is more fundamental than physical matter, then that means your dreams are real. Those dreams you have, which you probably dismiss most of the time, are more real than you know. And so the lesson is to do what people in the Bible do. Take your dreams seriously. Trust them. Even if you don't understand them. Augustine famously said, I trust so that I might understand. Which means if God speaks to me, the first thing I do is listen to it before rushing to conclusions. A couple of weeks ago, I hope you followed all that science stuff. I hope that was interesting to you. Let me try to bring it back to something practical now. A couple of weeks ago, we remembered uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He is one of my personal heroes, and that's not because he was a perfect person. It's because he stood for something. He gave his life for something greater than himself. And I think in that way, he was kind of like Joseph. He had a dream. Do you remember what he said? He said, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Do you know how insane that sounded in 1963? In 1963, when he gave that speech, there was literally no rational reason to believe that his dreams were anything other than naive fairy tales. And yet King said, I think my dreams are more real than the current reality. And because he believed them, other people started to believe them. And guess what? Those intangible dreams became physical reality. Not perfectly, but can anyone say that his dreams, which were little more at that point than his imagination, were not real? No, they were more real than reality itself. They came to shape what the future would be. I spoke earlier about how God is the supreme consciousness beyond all physical reality. Now, if that's true, then it suggests a very powerful idea. God himself must dream. God has dreams. And in fact, we see this in the Bible, that God is always dreaming. Just look at Joseph's family. In, in the passage right before the one that we read today, Matthew gives us this genealogy of the family of Jesus. He goes all the way back to Abraham, showing us all the generations that have prepared the way for the birth of the Messiah. And at first glance, it seems like a pretty boring genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah, etc., etc. But at a certain point, we come to these unusual characters. Matthew mentions, for example, Tamar. Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into impregnating her by disguising herself as a prostitute. Tamar is a grandmother of Jesus. Then we come to Rahab. Rahab, who, who saved Joshua when he entered the promised land. Rahab ran a brothel in Canaan. She was herself a prostitute, a brothel owner, and a grandmother to Jesus. Then we come to Bathsheba, the woman who left her husband to have an affair with King David, an affair that caused David to murder her husband, another painful scandal. And she was a grandmother of Jesus. I mean, nobody would have wanted a family line like that. But the most amazing thing is that this is the family God chooses for the Savior of the world. As if to say, the people that you reject as scandalous are my children, 
And then he says, guess what, I'm not done yet. I'm going I'm to take my dream to another level of imagination. I'm going to use another woman a poor, unmarried, terrified Jewish woman, a woman whose own pregnancy will be a scandal, a woman whose husband will be ready to divorce her, I'm going to put my very own son into her womb. And this baby born into poverty, growing up in an occupied land, in a time of violence, this little baby will become the savior of the world. Now, if anybody other than God had that dream, they would say, that's impossible. They would say, I just can't believe a dream like that, and they would forget it. But you see, that's the wonder of the gospel, that underneath all things, underneath all physical matter that you can touch and that you can see, is God's consciousness, which is a dream of using imperfect people like you and me to do amazing things. It's a dream that says no matter who else you think you are, the most fundamental thing about you is that you have a role in God's unfolding dream. Now, I think that deep down, most of us know that this dream is real, that it is more real than what we think is real most of the time. But of course, there is always the temptation to dismiss it. There's always that temptation to say, that's not real life. I need to trust only in what I can see and touch and control. I can't risk trusting my heart to something that might not be real. I can't admit to my friends that I'm so naive that I might actually take Jesus seriously. The gospel challenges that. It says, forget about what you think is respectable. Don't worry about what other people think. The God says, in fact, the only risk is to not live in God's dream because that is the source of all meaning. That is the most fundamental thing in the universe. Apart from God's dream, we have nothing, we are nothing, but within God's dream, even the strangest characters among us have a role to play. I think that's an amazing thing. God would not have created you if he didn't have a role for you in his dream. Let's pray. Merciful God, Thank you for including us in your dream of salvation. Help us to hear your voice whenever and wherever it comes, even when it contains a challenge that we would never ask for. We trust that your dream is always a dream of hope and life and love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.